You only die once, but you can get close a few times. Many people report leaving their bodies, not all, of course. And it takes them a while to realize, I'm okay here without my body. And I'm floating around, and they often then will find themselves in some other realm, some non-physical realm or dimension. Bruce Grayson has interviewed thousands of people about what they call near-death experiences, where they briefly leave this dimension, their body, everything they know, and then come back. Now, to get there, people often seem to go through a tunnel of some type. But how people describe it is based on what your culture tells you, tells you to believe. In places where there aren't a lot of tunnels, they may describe falling into a well or going into the long throat of a big flower. Um, I talked to one person here who was a truck driver who said he got sucked into a tailpipe. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, life after life. The only thing guaranteed in life is death, and we spend a lot of time imagining what it's all about. Bruce Grayson is a professor emeritus of psychiatry and neurobehavioral sciences at the University of Virginia. He was never a spiritual person. He saw the flesh as the flesh. But talking to thousands of people who've had near-death experiences and were witness to something the rest of us can only imagine has changed his perspective. He writes about their experiences in his book, After, a doctor explores what near-death experiences reveal about life and beyond. A note to listeners, this conversation mentions suicide. This is an encore presentation of an interview that originally aired in June 2021. Bruce, how did you first get interested in looking into near-death experiences? What was your indoctrination? Uh, well, that's a good story, Sarah, because I started out in life as a, as a, in a scientific household where people never talked about anything spiritual or spooky at all. Uh, everything was just the physical world, and that was, that was it. What you see is what you get. And when you died, that was the end. And that was fine with us. There wasn't any fear of death. It was just, that's the end. And then when I started to become a psychiatrist, in one of the first weeks into my internship, I was asked to see a patient in the emergency room who had overdosed. As it happened, I was um, in the hospital cafeteria at the time eating dinner when the, my pager went off and scared the dickens out of me. I dropped my fork and it splashed some spaghetti on my tie. So I quickly tried to wipe it off and ended up making it bigger. So I quickly put on my lab coat and buttoned it up so no one could see the stain. I went down to the emergency room and the patient was totally unconscious. I could not arouse her no matter what I did. So I went down the hall to speak to her roommate and I was starting to sweat in there, so I unbuttoned my lab coat and inadvertently exposed the stain, which I didn't realize at the time. We talked for about 15 minutes, and then I stood up to shake her hand. I realized I had exposed the stain, so I quickly buttoned it up so no one else would see it. Then I went back to see the patient, and she was still totally unconscious. And I arranged to see her the next morning when she awoke. I started by introducing myself, as I normally would, and she stopped me and said, I know who you are. I remember you from last night. That stunned me. So I said to her, I'm, I'm surprised at that. I thought you were out cold when I saw you. And she looked at me for the first time and said, not in my room. I saw you talking to my roommate down the hall. And she described to me what my, our conversation was like, where we were sitting, what we were wearing, and finally described the spaghetti stain on my tie, which had only been visible for about 10 or 15 minutes while I was talking to our roommate. There was no way she could have known that. Uh, it, it just blew me away. I just couldn't imagine how this could be. I was totally confused. However, I realized I had a job to do there. I, I couldn't deal with my confusion. I was there to deal with hers. So I tried not to think about it and sort of put it on my mind for a few years. In about 1975, I met Raymond Moody, who had written a book that year called Life After Life, in which he gave us the term near-death experiences and described what they were like. And he was working then with me in the emergency room at the University of Virginia. And I read his book and talked with him about it, and I was stunned to find that this incident my patient had said to me a few years earlier was not just one isolated incident, but part of a huge phenomenon that people were reporting all over the world. So I started plunging into it, trying to collect as many cases as I could. I assumed there has to be some physiological brain mechanism causing this to happen. What do you mean? What could it possibly have been, or what were some theories you had? Well, you know, I was new at this. I just imagined 
no matter how you come close to death, one of the last things that happens is you lose oxygen to the brain. So maybe that's what causes it, maybe lack of oxygen. Maybe it's drugs that we give to people uh, when they're near death. Maybe it's drugs your brain is producing under stress, like endorphins. Is there some unusual electrical activity going on in the brain at this time that's causing it? Of course, none of those would have explained her seeing spaghetti stains on your tongue. No, they wouldn't. But part of me still didn't believe that happened. You know, I'm thinking, this can't be somebody was playing a trick on me. It, it just couldn't have happened. So did you start investigating full-time? How did this no, come no, about? No, 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 no. You can't make a living doing that full-time. Um, I was a psychiatrist, and I was doing the near-death research in my spare time, meaning evenings and weekends. How were you finding people who'd had near-death experiences? Well, at first, we got them from the emergency room. And the more people heard about my interest, they started writing to me. It didn't take long to collect thousands of these cases. Give me a few examples of an array of different people who've had near-death experiences. Okay, one woman who was undergoing an operation in the emergency room left her body in the middle of the operation, watched the operation for a while, and then drifted away and started wandering around the hospital halls. And she found herself eventually in the waiting room where her mother was waiting for her. And her mother was smoking a cigarette, which stunned her because her mother was not a smoker. She looked at her mother for a while, tried to talk to her, but her mother didn't hear her. So she went, eventually went back to the operating room and was called back into her body. Later, she confronted her mother about this, and the mother said, no, I'm not a smoker, but I was so anxious about how you were doing in the operation that I borrowed a cigarette from someone else in the, in the waiting room, so I did smoke one cigarette. Right. So it uh, could have been pure coincidence, but right. very interesting. Give me another. Right. Another one was a um, 25-year-old technical writer had been hospitalized with pneumonia, and he had one particular nurse he was very fond of who kept working with him day after day. And at one point she said, I'm taking a long weekend off, so I won't see you for a few days. Other nurses will be working with you. And that weekend, uh, while she was gone, he had another respiratory arrest where he had to be resuscitated. And during that arrest, he had a near-death experience where he found himself in a pastoral scene. And to his great surprise, this nurse, Anita, came walking towards him. He was stunned. So we said, Anita, what are you doing here? And she said, well, this is where I am now, but you can't stay here. You need to go back to your body and I want you to tell my parents that I'm sorry I wrecked the red MGB. He then found himself back in his body, and the next time a nurse came into his room, he excitedly told her about the experience. She got very upset and turned and walked out of the room, and he later learned that this nurse had taken the weekend off to celebrate her 21st birthday, and her parents had surprised her with a red MGB, which she jumped into, took off for a drive, lost control of the car, smashed into a telephone pole, and died instantly, shortly before his near-death experience. Now, there's no way he could have expected to see her or wanted to see her, and certainly no way he could have known how she died, and yet he did. I have to ask you, has anyone who's heard this story and was skeptical asked you a good question that would cast any doubt on it? Oh, sure. They typically ask, could he have overheard some other nurses talking about her having died? I don't know how you combat that. Uh, you can ask all the nurses on the nursing staff whether they had talked about it in front of him. Uh, you can ask him if he heard about that. Um, but the skeptics can always say, well, they don't remember or they're not telling you the truth. We have thousands of these cases now where people have come back and told us things that can be corroborated. Jan Holden, who was a professor of the University of North Texas, collected about 100 of these cases. And she found that in 92% of them, the facts that the patient reported were corroborated as accurate by some third party. And there were facts to be corroborated? Yes. For instance? Well, things like I mentioned, like, like knowing that the nurse had died, wrecking her at MGB, and sometimes more mundane details. You know, one, one person reported in an operation looking down and seeing that one of the nurses in the operating room had mismatched shoelaces. Who would notice that? And yet it caught his eye, he reported it, and it was true. One of my favorite stories is a, a fellow, a 55-year-old guy who was brought to the hospital with chest pain and ended up having quadruple bypass surgery. And in the middle of the operation, he left his body and looked down and saw his surgeon, as he described it, flapping his elbows like he was trying to fly. When he told me about this, I'd been a doctor about 30 years. I had never seen or heard of anyone doing this. I thought, he's got to be hallucinating. So I talked with his surgeon. And the surgeon, to my surprise, said, yeah, yeah, I did do that. He had developed this unique habit where he lets his assistant start the procedure while he gets his sterile gown and gloves on. 
And then he walks into the operating room. He doesn't want to risk touching anything that's not in the sterile field. So he places his palms flat against his chest where they won't touch anything and then supervises them by pointing things out with his elbows rather than his fingers so he won't touch anything. (laughs) How many people would you guess you've spoken with as opposed to read their account? Oh, gosh. Um, I've talked to several thousand. Really? You've talked to several thousand? Yeah. yeah. Well, there's an organization called the International Association for Near-Death Studies, and I go to those conferences, and I talk to people there. I talk to people in airports. I talk to people everywhere, and they share their near-death experiences with me. Ever doubted anybody's story? Yes. Really? Yeah. I can sort of sense when people are exaggerating something or you know making something up. I can't say they are lying, but it doesn't feel right to me. There was a point where you were trying to get more consistent data. Yes. Earlier in your career, and you were using the stories from people who'd had a certain heart procedure where their hearts had to be stopped for a little while, mm, right. asking them later, may you find out whether they had an experience. Yeah. So they had a a device placed in their chest that would monitor their heart rate. And when they went into cardiac arrest, it would automatically shock them back into a regular rhythm. And when they put this device in, the only way to test whether it works is to actually just intentionally stop their hearts and see where the device kicks in. So we know exactly when their hearts are going to be stopped. So it seemed to me like a great place to study near-death experiences. That was smart of you to think this could be a gold mine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, so I, what I did is I, I rigged up a laptop on top of the x-ray machine in the operating room. It was way above my head. It was nine feet up in the air. It would randomly select one out of 70 pictures to show a moving picture, and it would run for five minutes with the time being flashed on it so we'd know exactly when it happened. And then it would shut itself off, and nobody would know what the picture the computer selected, although the computer kept a record of it. And you were trying to figure out what? Whether people really can see these things from above. You can only see this this laptop if you were looking down from the ceiling. You you were assuming that people might be able to say, I left my body during the operation, and I floated above the operating right. table. Right. Well, people kept reporting that to me. I was up there looking down, and I saw this or that. So I thought, well, let's plant a target up there and see if they can report it. So I did that. And then when they recovered, which was often just... An hour or two later, I would ask them, did you see anything unusual? And they would invariably say no. So that was a bust. It was a bust. That's really not near death. That's merely Mm. heart stopping. Right. Well, what is near death if it's not heart stopping? Right. Yeah. Now, we we did a study with everyone who was admitted to the, uh, the hospital here at UVA with a heart attack or cardiac arrest. And we found that of those who had a cardiac arrest, their hearts actually stopped. 10% reported a near-death experience. For the other people admitted with some other cardiac problem, 1% did. So clearly having your heart stopped is a major factor in producing a near-death experience or allowing a near-death experience to to occur. So are most people who've had near-death experiences people who've had cardiac arrest? No, no. They come from a wide variety. Uh, One fellow um, in his mid-30s, he was working under his truck, and it was up on Jack's. And it fell and landed right on his chest and crushed his chest. And he immediately went into a near-death experience, a detailed review of his entire life. And what was most remarkable was that he saw these events not only through his eyes, but through the eyes of other people involved in the incident. One time he was uh, in his teens and he was driving his truck down the road and a drunk man happened to wander out in front of his truck. So this furious, hot-rotting teenager stopped the truck rolled down the window and started shouting at the drunk man. And the drunk man reached in the window and slapped Tom across the face. Well, that was too much for this this teenager. So he got out of the truck and started beating the man senseless until he was a bloody mass in the median strip. Well, when he had his near-death experience in his life review, he relived this through his eyes and through the eyes of the drunk man. So through his eyes, he felt the adrenaline rush, uh, his his face getting red, the, the fury... And through the other man's eyes, he saw the humiliation. He felt the pain of the 32 blows of, the, of his fists. He felt his, his nose getting bloody, his teeth going through his lower lip. And Tom was feeling both of these at the same time, from his perspective and from the drunk man's. And he comes away from this experience realizing we're not in this alone. We're all interconnected. 
Why would that be an insight from a near-death experiencer? So I, I take it he had this experience. Yes. Why did the others say it? Oh, they almost universally feel this. They go through the experience and feel c- totally connected with everything, with the universe, with a deity if they see one, with other people. And if they have the life review, they often feel this empathic part of the life review where they feel things from other people's perspective as well. And this changes their lives. Uh, you know, one person I knew was a, was a, a Marine sergeant in Vietnam, and he was shot in the chest and had shrapnel throughout his, his, his lungs. And during the operation to clean out his lungs, he had a near-death experience. But when he came back and woke up, he was totally transformed. And he went back, he was sent back into the field after he finished rehabilitation and found that he couldn't shoot his gun. The idea of shooting another human being was just totally abhorrent to him. And he just couldn't function as a Marine anymore. So he ended up coming back to the States and retraining to become a medical technician. And I've heard this type of thing again and again from people who have violent professions like police officers, career criminals, who can't go back to the same profession, have to go back and retrain to do something else. Could it not be having stared down death in the worst Mm. possible experience? I now am Scrooge. Mm. You know, I've seen my own death. It looked horrible. I um, want to live as fully and gloriously as I can now. Right. Most people who almost lose their lives come back treasuring their lives much more. However, if you haven't had a near-death experience, that makes you much more cautious, much more conservative, much less likely to take risks because you're afraid of losing your life. Whereas if you had a near-death experience and you know that what comes afterwards is pleasant, you're not afraid of losing your life. What sorts of things have people reported to you they did? What chances did they take that they hadn't before the near-death experience? Well, I'll tell you a very mundane one that affects me as a doctor. When patients have a heart attack and you tell them, you need to stop smoking and cut down on the fatty meats, they say, sure, what have you say? But if they had a near-death experience, they're saying, what do you mean? I like smoking. I'm not going to give it up. So they become much worse patients because they are no longer afraid of dying. You've also had people who had been suicidal. Yes. Who've had near-death experiences. Well, you know, one of the things that near-death experiences say most frequently is that they are no longer afraid of death or of dying. It was not something to be afraid of. And when I first heard that, as a psychiatrist, I was afraid that this was going to make people more suicidal. Because I had talked to a lot of people who were thinking about taking their lives, but deterred because they were afraid of what might happen if they did that. So I did a study of this. I interviewed everybody who was admitted to the hospital with a suicide attempt. And I compared those who had a near-death experience as a result of that suicide attempt with those who hadn't. And I followed them up for a year, and what I found was that those who had had near-death experiences were much less suicidal than those who hadn't had NDEs. And they said, if you're no longer afraid of dying, you're no longer afraid of living. And life becomes much more meaningful and much more fulfilling to you. They also said that in their near-death experience, they realized they're part of something greater than themselves. And the individual problems of this little bag of skin that I am are not all that I am. There's much more going on than just this physical body. I have so many questions. Do you think people who have near-death experiences who have not been deeply religious become deeply religious because they see the near-death experience as akin to heaven? What we find is that people who have near-death experiences become more spiritual. They say that they are much more aware of the connection between themselves and the universe and, and God and other people and much more compassionate towards other people. They are much more caring. They become much more altruistic in their behavior. And you can actually measure this and see what their behavior was like beforehand and afterwards. You wrote in your book that actually it's sometimes damaging to relationships. It can be. It can be. Uh, Children of a near-death experiencer often have a great deal of difficulty with this because they see their parent seeming to love everybody as much as they love their own children. Often spouses feel neglected by this. You know, I've known near-death experiencers who when something happened like Hurricane Katrina or September 11th uh, crashes, they would leave their families and rush off to see if they could help, which, of course, leaves the family feeling devastated. You know, who am I? So it can cause a lot of problems. And just on a more mundane level, their values seem to be changed. 
You know, one wife of a near-death spiritual complained to me that he doesn't care about fixing the car anymore or getting a new couch when we need one. You know, he doesn't care about those things anymore. But not every person has a glorious near-death experience or an enticing right. one, right? Right, right. You know, when we first started doing this research back in the late 70s and early 80s, all we heard were the blissful ones. And actually, it came to me in the person of Nancy Evans Bush, who took a job as the executive director of the International Association for Near-Death Studies. She had actually had an unpleasant experience herself, a terrifying one. Well, who would want to say, I felt like I went to hell? Exactly, exactly. Because people who have had unpleasant experiences think, what's wrong with me that I have this? Everyone else has a blissful one. It's not the case that nasty people have unpleasant experiences and good people have good experiences. I've talked to people who were in prison for life who have had blissful experiences when they had a heart attack in prison. And of course, I've talked to people who seem to be leading saintly lives who've had hellish experiences, which shouldn't surprise us because we have accounts from Catholic saints throughout the ages who had dark night of the soul experiences, St. Teresa of Avila, St. John of the Cross, and they write very eloquently about these horrifying experiences. And what do you make of them? I'm not really sure to what to make of them. And the, the historical figures, the Catholic figures, yeah. have not seen them as hell either, but rather as insightful. Yes, yes. Have you interviewed anyone since COVID descended during the pandemic who's had a near-death experience? Yes, I have, yeah. I'm getting emails almost every day from people who have experiences like this. You know, we're all, we're all being faced with death every day with COVID, whether it's people you know or just hearing on the daily news. So, of course, there's increased concern now about um, the stress of death and dying and what happens with this and, and the horror of it. And there's certainly horror in losing your loved ones, but there's not a horror in the death process itself. And I should say also that near-death experiencers, even though they may be looking forward to their own eventual death and know that it's a beautiful thing, and know that their deceased loved ones are going to something nice, they still grieve just like everyone else. They still feel the pain of being separated from their loved ones. That doesn't go away. So not everyone leaves their body and returns to the body or has that experience. What tends to be common for a near-death experience? Many people report leaving their bodies, not all, of course. And it takes them a while to realize, I'm okay here without my body. And I'm floating around. And they often will then will find themselves in some other realm, some non-physical realm or dimension. Now, to get there, people often seem to go through a tunnel of some type. Americans describe it as tunnels. It's a long, dark, enclosed space. But how people describe it is based on what your culture tells you, tells you to believe. In places where there aren't a lot of tunnels in third world nations, they may describe falling into a well or going into a cave or going into the long throat of a big flower. Um, I talked to one person here who was a truck driver who said he got sucked into a tailpipe. That was, that was the <laughs> metaphor that came to him most readily for right. this. Do they all see relatives who urge them to go back? No, no, no. Um, uh, many of them don't see any beings at all, but a large number do report seeing deceased loved ones. Um, and sometimes the loved ones tell them to come back, and sometimes they don't. Sometimes they just seem to be welcoming them. Have there been movies made about this? Oh, gosh, yes. Yes, a, a friend of mine has listed over 100 of these movies. There's one called um, Heaven Can Wait. Some people think The Wizard of Oz was a near-death experience. She gets hit on the head and goes into this other realm. Some people say that the new Pixar movie Soul is about a near-death experience. There was one not too long ago that Clint Eastwood had directed, and it had a number of characters who had unusual experiences. One was a fellow, I believe it was Matt Damon, who played this role, who had a near-death experience. And what they focused on was his difficulty coming back into his own life, trying to relive his normal life again, with people either rejecting him because of this or expecting him to be some type of saint or super person after this. And he had a terrible time dealing with this. What do you make of it? Have your views on it or your understanding of it changed at all in the 45 years since you first talked to the young woman who remembered seeing your spaghetti? Uh, I've changed a lot. For one thing, I started out without any hint of what spirituality is, that there could be any non-physical part of us. And I am fairly convinced now that there is a non-physical part of us, and that, in fact, that's the most important part of us, and that it doesn't end when our physical body ends. I said I'm fairly convinced because I'm still a scientist, and I'm still a skeptic, and I think, well, part of me thinks, 
you could be misinterpreting the data, but me, that's not the scientist, thinks, eh, this is really, this is for real. And, uh, you know, most near-death experiences, when they start to tell you about their NDE, start by saying uh, there just aren't any words for it. But they all agree on how it feels to be out of the body and in this other realm. And it's a blissful, freeing, loving sensation. And I do expect that when I die. I don't know what to expect. In fact, I'm sure it's something I can't even imagine stuck in this little tiny brain of mine. But I do think it's going to be something that not only can I not imagine now, but I can't imagine how blissful it's going to be when I get there. You've also come to think that we are more psychically connected. And you very firmly feel this, that we are more psychically connected than you had any idea when you were a young man. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And I don't know whether that's coming from my experience with near-death experiences or just getting older in life and realizing, you know, we're all all this together, really. Several near-death experiences have used the metaphor of a wave in the ocean, that the wave is distinct from the rest of the ocean, at least for a while, but it's made of the same stuff the rest of the ocean is as well. And it came out of the ocean, and it'll go back into the ocean. That's the way we are. We've come out of this, whatever you want to call it, a universal consciousness, a Godhead, and we're going to go back into it. Where do you think our memories go when we die? I don't know how much of our individual memories or personalities we take with us. Uh, You know, when I I talk to near-death experiences, there's a strange paradox of being unified with everything else and yet still being a distinct entity. So it's possible that we may continue to maintain our individuality and our personalities uh, after we pass through this through death, but again, what near-death experiences tell me may be just the first few minutes of the dying process, and maybe something happens after that initial stage. You know, once you reach the point where you can't come back to life, maybe things are different there, and maybe the distinct personality we take with us fades after the first 10, 15 minutes, two days, whatever. Uh, So I don't know what to expect uh, after we die. But I do expect something. If I'm wrong, I won't be disappointed because I won't be there to know about it. Bruce Grayson, thank you for sharing your insights on With Good Reason. Well, thank you, Sarah. This has been a pleasure to talk to you again. Bruce Grayson is Professor Emeritus of Psychiatry and Neurobehavioral Sciences at the University of Virginia. His book is After A Doctor Explores What Near-Death Experiences Reveal About Life and Beyond. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason. This is an encore presentation of an episode that originally aired in July 2020. Amy Clark grew up hearing about the Cemetery of Enslaved People on her family's property in Appalachia. Years later, she decided it was time to truly honor that site and the people buried there by uncovering their history. It went beyond my role as a researcher to my role in this family, my role as a mother, Um, my place in history. Clark has been working with William Isom from the Black and Appalachia Project to learn more about the cemetery. Isom is the director of community outreach at East Tennessee PBS and the research coordinator for Black and Appalachia. He says researching Black family histories in Appalachia is like piecing together an intricate quilt. One little piece here and one little piece there, and, and you may have to wait a couple of years and keep looking, and then you'll find another little piece. And my mentor, uh, Darlene Wilson, I heard her say one time that there, you know, there's these two mountains, and one mountain is the official narrative. It's the things that you find in the newspapers. It's the it's the court documents, the court records, and then there's there's this other mountain, which is the vernacular history. It's the stories that people tell each other when they're sitting on their front porch. It's oftentimes the real story that isn't shared with the broader society. And where these two mountains meet, it's called the holler, right? Or the valley. <laughs> yeah. And and oftentimes 
And the holler is where the water comes from. It's where you find the most biodiversity. And I think in, in this case, by holding up these, these vernacular histories and these official histories up together at the same time as equally valuable, then we can begin to like dig in and appreciate the biodiversities of these stories and live and operate within the contradictions of these stories. That's the closest thing that we can, I think, that we can get to something that you may consider the truth. When did you first start looking into your family's history and wanting to know more about the actual history? In elementary school, they 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 have you do the um, family tree, right? Once I started trying to do what the other kids in the class were doing, that information was not available for my family. And I wondered why. So had there been many Black people, Black families in your neck of the woods growing up? Yeah, there there were and are lots of Black families in, in, in the region. And they had been there since the kind of the English kind of stumbled their way across the mountains. Black folks came with them and in some cases came a little bit before them. And so slave labor built that economy and allowed those settlers to develop the towns and the counties and the coal economy. What are some of the family stories you grew up on about your ancestors from that area? Yeah, there's one story in particular about my great-great-granddad. His name was Kelson Harrison Isom. And the story that, as it was told to me, was that he was the son of a slave and a slave owner, one of 13 children from this relationship. And as the story goes, as these 13 boys came of age, they were emancipated and kind of sit on their way out into the world. The slaveholder father never sold any of his, his children out of the family, never sold them down the river, so to speak. It's, it's a nice story. I mean, as, as nice as it can be. But in reality, I found a will, the will of the slaveholder, Gideon Ison, which listed Kelson and some of his brothers as property. And through the, the administration of that estate, they continued to rent these enslaved guys out to other family members and other farms in the area for profit, even after uh, national emancipation. And I had also found that my great-great-grandfather's brother, whose name was Gordon, was sold down the river to a slaveholder in Knoxville. And so the, the bones of the story were there, but the things that make that story palatable were not true. Were there other stories about this great-great-grandfather that you'd heard from family? Nobody knew where his grave was at. And so I was told that he was buried on a bluff in Hawkins County up on a mountain. And so I scoured every, every mountain along the Holston River trying to find his grave. And then one day, I ended up finding him and his wife and his brother's grave in the woods near Knoxville. And huh. uh, uncovered, literally uncovered his grave with my hands. I was like, oh, what's this? and like swept the leaves away and there there they were that must have been so moving for you to find that yeah it was it was very moving and very uh very magical because it was located adjacent to a cemetery but it was not in the main body of the cemetery and i remember saying this is a black cemetery i guarantee that there's people buried in the woods and lo and behold, there were, and they were, they were my, my ancestors. Do you think there are many more such sites that we haven't even documented yet in that region? Oh, yeah. There's probably hundreds of sites like this that are probably completely gone, like they've been paved over or have just been left out into inaccessible part of the woods and will never be recovered and never be found. William Isom is Director of Community Outreach at East Tennessee PBS, 
and the research coordinator for Black in Appalachia. One of ISOM's collaborators is Amy Clark. She's professor of communication and Appalachian studies at the University of Virginia College at Wise. Amy grew up in Appalachia on land that had been in her family for generations. Amy, you were very young when you would go on these walks with your grandparents, your grandmother. Who was it who first told you about the graves of enslaved people being on the family's property? My great-grandmother first told me the story. She was married to the man whose ancestors owned that land. And because I was born to very young parents, I had my great-grandparents and my grandparents and my parents for a very long time. And so I had this rich tradition of storytelling, and we would go on walks. And every so often, you know, they would retell the same stories that I had heard over and over, and this cemetery would come up, particularly in the ghost stories. What would they say about the cemetery in ghost stories? The ghost stories that they would tell would always take place in and around this patch of woods where the cemetery was located. But they would also use it as a marker, you know, out there close to the slave cemetery or a few yards right to the slave cemetery, something happened. And so there were stories about the devil appearing to an ancestor in the corn patch or ghostly riders on horseback chasing one of my grandmothers as she was trying to get home one night from being in the field. And so they always took place close by. And help me understand where this farm was that your family owned. Well, in central Appalachia, in in far southwestern Virginia, Lee County is the county that points west. We're in very wooded uh, farmland. And very hilly, very rough terrain in some places. So we live, my family lived along a hauler, so we call it a hauler. And it's it's along a road that is flanked by mountains and a river runs runs nearby. And our families had, you know, this is an old word, but our families had homesteads all up and down that hauler. And so I grew up within a bikes ride of great-grandparents and grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins. And so just imagine, you know, woods on one side divided by a dirt road and then a drop-off and the old home place is what my great-grandparents would call this home Um, where my white ancestors lived that owned all of this farmland. Beautiful place to sit on the front porch and tell stories, which was the experience I had growing up. When did you decide to start looking into who was buried in the cemetery of enslaved people on your family's land? I started writing about my family um, in my 20s because there were so many rich layers to the storytelling. And I remember I was sitting down and thinking about what I wanted to write in a writing workshop. And those graves came to my mind. And I thought, it's time. It's time for me to write about the graves. And so I just started by writing down everything that I knew just based on the stories that I had been told. And I began to realize that I wanted to know who was buried there, and I wanted to tell their story. And so that sort of set me on a path in 2013 that is still ongoing. How many graves are there, do you think? Well, when I went back to the site after so many years, um, and I remember this when we were walking through the woods when I was little, we had no idea how many graves there were. But I remember we counted something like seven to ten stones, and that's all there were. So when I went back, my husband and I went back and began to clear the ground, and we began to uncover more and more stones. We found about 30, but we suspect there are more because we didn't have the equipment to move as much foliage and brush and trees as we would need to to really uncover and clear the land. What kind of stones did you find? So we found field stones, um, and they're chiseled into shapes. So we knew, you know, that they were probably graves. They're chiseled into mound shapes and uh, pyramid shapes, rough, rough chiseling. There's, there's nothing engraved on them. They're simple field stones that were carried and placed. Are they big? 
the tallest one is about 15 inches tall and the smallest one is about four inches tall. So they're not very large, not like traditional gravestones that you would find in, in cemeteries. Do you think whole families are there? We know that probably whole families are there because I was able to get a ground-penetrating radar. A physicist, Rhett Herman, came from Radford and worked with me. I was able to get a grant to fund um, this reading of the ground. And this is something that is typically done in cemeteries where there are no gravestones or they've been moved. And because there are so many trees in this patch of woods and some of them had fallen, they had uprooted some of the graves. And so I wanted to know, first, I wanted to confirm that what I was looking at was a graveyard. And the second thing I wanted to do was see if the order of the burials matched the placement of the stones after so many years. And so Dr. Herman brought ground penetrating radar equipment that sends um, sound waves into the ground and it bounces back from organic material that doesn't match the soil. So wooden coffins or blankets or bones, it would bounce back from that. And I can't explain it as well as he would, but it translates into a reading on the computer and we can see where the burials are. He was concerned we wouldn't be able to do it very well because the ground is very rooty and, and you know, it's very hard to roll the machine over. But almost instantly he got a reading when he started to to do the work. And so what we found was it is a graveyard and we found clusters of burials together. And Dr. Herman's experience from mapping African-American cemeteries is that when clustering occurs in burials, it's usually family members. That's very moving, isn't it? It is. And it, it was moving for me to see them on the computer when they emerged they emerge as red cocoon-shaped images. And to actually see them for the first time was a, an experience that it's hard to describe. It was a fulfilling experience for me because I felt as though, I felt like I was making progress, but I also wanted to be able to say, you know, I can see you, you exist, I'm going to tell your story. When I realized that my own family was connected to this space, and then I started to research the county's history and some of the stories that I found, I realized that I didn't have the true history of my county, and I didn't have the true history of my family. And so it became really important not only for the people buried there in 2013, 2014, 2015, 2016, in the context of that time period and all of the things that were happening socially and culturally, it became more important for me to be able to tell that story and for my children. You know, when I tell my children about their family history, I want to get it right. And I, and I want, as I'm teaching them about the time period that they're growing up in, this seems like the perfect opportunity because they've joined me on this journey as they've gotten older. You know, they've gone into the woods with me and, and we've talked about who's there, who's probably there, and we've talked about the history behind that. And so it, it's hard to explain, but and it's more complicated than that, but it, it, it went beyond my role as a researcher to my role in this family, my role as a mother, um, my place in history. How old are your children? They're 10 and 12 now. My daughter is the same age that I was when I first became aware of the stones. What did you learn about how these enslaved people came to be part of your family's history? When I was beginning the research, a family member pointed to a death portrait that hung on my great-grandmother's wall. And this wasn't uncommon, this isn't uncommon, particularly among Appalachian families, to have portraits of the dead. Um, it was the only portrait that she had of her husband's little sister, who had died of meningitis in the 1920s. Mary? So, Mary. And so I started researching her 
and her husband and her father. And all of the stories that are told about them were that her father was a slave owner, one of the richest men in Lee County, and that he had given her and her husband, who was a Confederate veteran, uh, slaves when they were married. Around what era? Um, this would have been pre or during the Civil War. Right. About how many enslaved people had he had? This, the family stories suggest that he had up to 40, the father, um, and that a few of them came to live with her and her family. Um, and in 1870 census records, we do find African-Americans continuing to live in the immediate area after the Civil War. What became of the African-Americans in that area, in your county and the surrounding counties after the war? You know, the Reconstruction period was a very difficult time. Um, and from what I have gathered from news accounts and articles and things that I've gathered, um, a large number of the African-American population were basically driven away from the county. Um, they were competing um, after the Civil War for jobs. You know, it was a terrible time, a terrible uh time in terms of, of racism and, and very little opportunity. This was a time when the Ku Klux Klan organized, and there was Klan activity in Lee County at that time. And so from, from what I've gathered, that was a large reason why so many people left as they were driven away. Had you learned any of that kind of history in your school years? None of it. None of that that I can remember None of that was in my in my classroom or in my history books. I just knew that, you know, in Lee County, there were landmarks. There was evidence of racism all around us. And we in Appalachia have such a strong sense of place anyway. Place is so important to our roots, I think, because it's how we made our living for so long. It... Um, you know, between farmland and coal and timber, these extraction industries were just so connected to place. And burial rituals are connected to place. And so this story, I think, is, you know, when I think about place and I think about my family's place and my place in history, um, it's not something I can look away from. It's not something that I can deny. And I think as hard as it's been going forward to keep doing this, even when it's frustrating and you and you run into so many dead ends, anyone who does genealogical work knows this. There's something that just keeps you pressing forward. And I think one of the things that has helped a great deal is that I've had a co-researcher, William Isom, who works for East Tennessee PBS and is a documentary filmmaker. I'm aware of the fact that I'm processing all of this information and I'm telling this story as a white woman in the 21st century. And so I don't I don't want to presume to be telling the story of African American people, you know, from a position of white privilege. Yeah. It's and and yet I am trying to do that very thing, but having, you know, a co-researcher who's telling the story alongside me and finding his own family roots um, has has been enlightening for me. It's been um, it's kept me, you know, reflexive and reflective in thinking about how I may be getting it right or getting it wrong. Um, and so that's that's something that I constantly try to keep in mind. In your own research, have you been able to identify the the people who are in any of these graves? I have not conclusively. We have found the names of people that we know were living close by in 1870. Um, but so far, no names that I can link specifically to those graves. What do you want to achieve with all the research into these long-forgotten graves on beloved family land? I think, again, is is not only to tell 
my story, our story to my own children, but maybe, I don't know if it's right to say revise history, but maybe it is right to say revise history, maybe a rewriting of history to include African-Americans who helped build this county, who helped, you know, shape this county. Um, They may be few in number now, but they weren't then. And I think to deny their place in our county's history is so wrong, um, and it does such a disservice to our younger generations. And so I just, you know, I'm, I believe in the power of story, and I know the power of story. And if I can get as close as possible to building this narrative of this community that lived here, worked here, and rests here now, um, I think that's my end goal. Amy Clark, this is a wonderful project. Thank you for talking with me and with good reason. Thank you, Sarah. Amy Clark is Professor of Communication and Appalachian Studies at the University of Virginia College at Wise. She's also co-director of the Center for Appalachian Studies and was named an outstanding faculty member by the State Council of Higher Education for Virginia. This is an encore presentation of an episode that originally aired in July 2020. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monacan Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Cassandra Deering and Aviva Castro are our interns. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.